0: Welcome to the Horses Equine Innovators Podcast, sponsored by Zoetis Animal Health. I'm your host, Stephanie Church, Editor-in-Chief of The Horse. Every day, researchers at universities and other institutions around the world are investigating new ways to care for and understand our horses in the horse industry. In this podcast series, we talk to those innovators to learn more about their work. First a message from our sponsor. We all know the saying, no hoof, no horse, but research also shows that many common horse behavior problems can be rooted in dental pain. Our podcast sponsor, Zoetis, encourages all horse owners to schedule an annual dental exam with their equine veterinarian. Visit ZoetisUS.com to learn more. Your clients' horses will thank you. Drug use in horse racing and in competition arenas remains a controversial and complicated aspect of the horse industry. Drug testing is important to ensure a level playing field and, more importantly, the health and safety of these animals. But testing methods are imperfect. We need more scientific data to support policy change that will allow authorities to prosecute violators and prevent at-risk horses from racing and competing in the first place. In early April 2021, we recorded this podcast episode with Dr. Scott Stanley, a professor at the University of Kentucky's Gluck Equine Research Center, several weeks before the Kentucky Derby and subsequent reports of winner Medina Spirit testing positive for the corticosteroid beta Dr. Stanley and his team have been collecting data and working on a solution for problems that conventional drug testing techniques present. He is a research scientist with more than 30 years of regulatory drug testing experience. Currently, Dr. Stanley runs two laboratories. One is a research lab at the Gluck Equine Research Center and the other, the Equine Analytical Chemistry Laboratory, located in the Coldstream Research Campus at the University of Kentucky, which is a service lab. We hope you enjoy learning more about this fascinating field of study. Welcome, Dr. Stanley.
1: Thank you, thank you for that kind introduction.
0: You're welcome, thanks for joining us. Tell me a little bit about your role at the University of Kentucky and your research focus and how you ended up there in the first place.
1: Um, so I was uh, in Kentucky uh, doing sabbatical leave, looking at uh, a research project with Dr. Orhoff, um Equine Biological Passport Biomarkers. For uh, infectious diseases, sorry, inflammatory diseases, as well as our uses for anti doping. And uh, the opportunity presented itself for us to have some further discussion regarding uh, drug testing needs for the state of Kentucky. Uh, So that developed further into the opportunity of a faculty position at the Gluck Center and running a service laboratory in conjunction with U.S. Equestrian Federation. So in uh, late in December 2018 I came back to the University of Kentucky as professor and took over the laboratory at Coldstream in the summer of 2019 and we've been running and operating that for USCF We are an accredited laboratory, accredited to an ISO standard, as well as the Racing Medication Testing Consortium. Uh, We've been doing about 11,000 samples the last couple years, and we're going to move that up. So we're doing some more work uh, for them, as well as the Kentucky Racing Commission. In addition to that, a service laboratory at the Coldstream Facility also have a research laboratory at the Gluck Equine Research Center. Uh, the research laboratory is principally focused on equine pharmacology and toxicology and analytical methodology for improving our ability to detect those drugs in those classes in addition to that we're doing something uh, that's uh, better known to biologists in the industry as proteomics and we're looking at proteins and peptides in the thoroughbred force principally uh, to look at physical changes that might be related to a performance enhancing drug that would be used sometime during the horse's career. So it's more of an out-of-competition testing approach, but it allows us to look at the horse in a unique perspective over time, meaning that we can look at, at that individual horse from the time it's a yearling up through its performance racing career and find out if someone has doped it with an illegal substance.
0: That's super interesting, thank you so uh, we're going to get into the equine biological passport here in a little bit but let's first talk a little bit about the history of drug testing i know a lot has changed even since the early 2000s when i toured the usa equestrian which is now the u.s equestrian federation drug Drug testing laboratory which was then in ohio Um, where did we start and where are we now with the conventional drug testing techniques
1: Uh, Well, over the last uh, several decades since, you know, the early 2000s, drug testing has changed substantially and and mostly because the technology utilized for drug testing has also changed. And there's new needs. Um, uh, The pharmaceutical companies are developing more potent drugs, which means you can give a smaller dose and have a desired outcome. general intention for that is the drug clears more quickly and the horse can come back to a more normal state. So if they want to use a sedative, it would be shorter uh, duration of action. But because those drugs are more potent, we need to apply more sensitive testing technology. And that has developed in the industry through... Um, mass spectrometry and and different forms of chromatography for isolation and separation of those drugs. Because those occurrences, the anti-doping laboratories, the equine drug testing laboratories, as well as human drug testing, have applied these new methodology uh, for their anti-doping needs. With that, uh, we're able to see these prohibited substances at much lower concentrations but it's also presented a challenge when we have a therapeutic substance. So the conventional testing used to be the thin layer chromatography and immunoassay based, almost exclusively now based on gas chromatography, mass spectrometry and liquid chromatography, mass spectrometry. And those tools allow us to see those drugs, uh, or target drugs at low parts per billion, and in many cases down in the parts per trillion.
0: What are some problems that the current drug testing methods present?
1: Um, so there's some challenges that we come across. Um, I was in California for uh, over 25 years before coming back here at UC Davis. I worked very closely with veterinarians at the uh, School of Veterinary Medicine where I was faculty. and what we often were challenged with was we have a therapeutic medication or a new therapeutic medication that was being used in horses and some of those horses were competing whether it was a show or a race and we wanted to find out information about that therapeutic drug and when it needed to be withdrawn in order to allow the horse to compete in competition so we did a lot of studies looking at that i i worked very closely with a a couple of equine pharmacologists, uh, but Dr. Heather Kinich was at UC Davis, helped um, perform the majority of those studies. Uh, she was a principal investigator for a lot of that work for the Racing Medication Testing Consortium, which led to uh, guidance and published information about how long the drug could be seen, what dose would be appropriately given by the label claim of the medication, and then advising veterinarians and horse trainers as to when to withdraw the drug, so they wouldn't have any findings. We also occasionally did investigations uh, looking at contaminants. Uh, contaminants are an example of you know substance something that comes into the horse's environment that's unknown to the individuals involved, and that could be substances like caffeine, uh, in some cases nicotine, scopolamine, uh, or other medications that might be present in substance and unknown to the the trainer or the owner. We occasionally run into a new drug that needed investigation and and methodology to develop so that we could find it and determine whether it was metabolized extensively or whether we just needed to follow the parent drug. So those are some of the, the challenges that we come into or problems. That we need, uh, where we need an either a new method or a more sensitive method for the detection of those small concentrations of drugs.
0: Okay, thank you. So the environmental contamination part I find very interesting. Can you give an example of a case where that was the culprit?
1: Yeah, we have multiple different um, occurrences where you know that was the case. Uh, we had. Uh, Situations where we had feed contaminant, we had contaminants in the straw. Um, There were a number of findings over the years for uh, scopolamine from jimson weed that got into bedding or into hay uh, when the hay or or the straw was being baled. Uh, We had a number of feed contaminants. Some of them were more complicated than others, but we usually did an investigation in order to figure out where that came from. And usually there were uh, patterns that occurred. And what I mean by a pattern is it wasn't one trainer or one barn that was involved. There would be multiple individuals involved throughout a the course of time. And you could almost always tell when there was an, a contamination because when the first report were to come out, if it was controlled, then the individuals involved would immediately stop doing that if it was uncontrolled we continue to have violations and a really good example of that was a feed contamination we had a number of years ago where one of the larger feed companies was preparing mixed feed rations and they inadvertently contaminated that sweet feed um, mm-hmm through the molasses, and the molasses had been treated with, or sorry, the molasses contained Zelpaterol because they had used it uh, as a, sorry, as a substance that would increase growth promotion in cattle. So that molasses intended for use in cattle uh, got mixed in with the equine formulation for sweet feed, and we had a large number of positives in a very short period of time. Another prime indication of a contaminant is when it's at most multiple tracks. So we had nearly 50 positives in the course of of just about 30 days at three different tracks throughout California. And it was determined that the Zalpaterol present in those um, horses had come from a sweet feed that had been contaminated. And they used the molasses as a means to mix in medicated feeds like Zalpaterol. They Hmm. would put and the molasses, and then use the molasses to mix in with the feed. Um, Because of that circumstance, we were able to backtrack all of that. At the time, we didn't know it was a molasses, um, but we kept investigating and working with the Department of Food and Agriculture, with the feed company, and with the California Horse Racing Board to finally determine where that contaminated occurred. We found it was one feed plant on one day. They just happened to make thousands of pounds of horse feed in that day, which resulted in getting distributed all over the state. In fact, wow. that, that same occurrence happened because some of that molasses was mu- used to make sweet feed that went overseas to Hong Kong, and they had a number of findings in Hong Kong from that same one day exposure.
0: Oh, wow well kudos to you for figuring it out
1: yeah well I think uh, a lot of times that's our job we need to do an investigation and not necessarily a straight-up prosecution we want to find out you know what happened and see if we can't uh, learn something from that because we want to make sure it doesn't happen again we want to provide people information and feedback we also need that information so the regulators can appropriately apply penalties so in an, an occurrence where you know, um, no one's at fault. There's no way the trainers could have known that this feed contamination was happening. They don't deserve to be penalized, have their license suspended, uh, etc., because they have done something that's completely outside of their control. And when we can figure out where it came from, then they can apply the appropriate uh, penalty or none in some cases.
0: So Dr. Stanley, what other type of environmental contaminations have you seen? Uh,
1: So in addition to the feed substance, which is probably the most common, we often, not often, but occasionally we get exposures from the human that are in contact with the horse. Uh, And that can be in a stall or handling the horse or handling something that is uh, in contact with the horse, like the horse's tongue or the or the bit or around their mouth. Horses have a really good capability to absorb things orally, um, but also they use their mouths a lot of time, you know, to forage around the bottom of the stalls. And there are those odd circumstances where the human has used the stall as a restroom, and if they happen to be on a medication, that medication can get consumed by the horse when they are either eating bedding or hay that might be contaminated by something that was in the human system. Now, that can be circumstances where they're on a, a, a regular therapeutic medication or where they handled something and then handled the horse. So those are real-world circumstances. We've had drugs like propranolol, which is an, uh, a medication given to uh, people with heart deficiencies or cardiac insufficiencies and it's a drug that's not particularly potent, so they take large doses or larger doses, and then if they were to use the the stall as a restroom, that could get contaminated into the stall, result in absorption into the horse. Uh, We also have other circumstances where the horse can contaminate a stall and another horse is put in that stall resulting in exposures. Mm -hmm. So those are the other type of environmental exposures that can happen other than just the feed substances that the horses consume.
0: Okay, so earlier you mentioned withdrawal times when you're talking about Dr. Kinnitch and some of the research that you guys did. Um not all of our listeners have navigated those role drug testing at all, even or withdrawal times. Could you explain kind of how they work and if they and do they differ in a horse show setting versus a racing one?
1: Yeah, okay, sure. I'd be glad to handle that and uh, and they do in fact change depending on uh, what performance event you're looking at, whether it's a show or whether it's a race. And in some cases, uh, we find differences because they're therapeutic medications and the horses that are at a show are not putting them under the same stresses that a horse that would be competing in a race. So it may just, in fact, be the fact that they're not, um, you know, racing at full speed uh, like a thoroughbred. So we can use medications that might be dangerous to use in a racehorse in a show horse. So there are some differences. Um but uh, with uh, in collaboration with Dr. Kinich, we did a large number of studies over the years that looked at these therapeutic medications and provided feedback for pharmaceutical companies, regulators and veterinarians, as well as trainers so that they would know when to use a medication, at what dose they could use a medication and when to withdraw that medication so it wouldn't be present in the horse's blood or urine when they're competing. So the intention is, is by regulation, uh, they're generally not allowed to have any substance present in their system when they compete. So if we utilize a model using the horse and we dose it with the appropriate drug, we collect blood and urine samples out through a time course, we can predict when the end of detection period would be. In some cases, if it's a therapeutic drug, um, we may establish a threshold, um, but most cases we're just going to follow that drug out until they can no longer see it and we determine when that time period is. So once we've established our detection time, we'll go back and determine how to apply withdrawal time. So the withdrawal time is always going to be longer than our detection time. You know, based on information that we have. So we can see the drug for fifty six hours, we would probably recommend at least sixty hours for a withdrawal period.
0: Okay, Thank you. Um, and all right, the the therapeutic medications, um, some would wonder why they might be necessary. Um, why are they necessary? and where do we start seeing problems with them with drug drug testing?
1: Well, uh, just like with human athletes, um, horses run into different setbacks. They get sick. They get a minor injury. Um, so they need to be able to be treated with a therapeutic substance, like an antibiotic or a non anti-inflammatory, in some cases a glucocorticoid. Mm-hmm. Horses can get hives from different reactions of feed stuff they're exposed to or from, you know, commonly... Uh, seen pollens, bee stings and other things that cause them to react. So it's essential that veterinarians have the ability to treat a horse when they're ill or when they're injured and then we need to have information about when that drug needs to be withdrawn so they can get back into competition. So it's just a normal course of you know health care and monitoring the health of the horse as well as uh, you know the environment around the horse to make sure that we're using the most logical information or can compete on a fair level playing field with no pharmacological advantage and no possibility of having a medication violation.
0: Where do supplements come in?
1: So supplements and nutraceuticals are seen slightly different uh, than than those. Generally, uh, we're not using the supplements as a pharmaceutical. So they're not given by injection, they're ingested. However, some of those substances can be either contaminated with a uh, a natural product, something like caffeine, nicotine, um, even we have to remember that, you know, uh, ephedrine, morphine, and cocaine are all things that that grow. Uh, one of the things that we did see fairly frequent, not fairly frequently, but occasionally in California was scopolamine because it was Native to California. So if they were baling hay or straw, sometimes it became part of that uh, and resulted in the horse's stall or in the feed and, re- and ended up resulting in a positive because it wasn't often recognized because it could be a very small amount. Uh, because the drug testing is so sensitive, we could pick up those, you know, 24 or 48 hours after the horse consumed it.
0: Okay and that's the the jimson weed that
1: yeah has
0: okay got it yeah i'm not as familiar with that back east so well
1: and and, and you know there's all kinds of other stories you can tell about jimson weed and, and some of these plant products because we did a lot of investigation from some findings we had when i first got out to california in uh in the 90s uh, we found that jimson weed depending on how much water was present, what time of the year, whether it was a leaf, the stem, or the seeds. You had different concentrations of scopolamine, atropine, and hyoscyamine present in the samples uh, depending on what they consumed, whether that was, like I said, leaves or stems, whether it was a drought year, whether it was a rainy year. Um, there was a lot of variability in that, so you couldn't always tell, you know, just by um, the amount of scopolamine whether it was gypsum
0: Okay that's so interesting. So drugs whether used as a therapeutic or performance enhancing can be like moving targets for drug testing labs um, and you mentioned that a little bit earlier. Why is this? Um, who's developing these types of things and how do you keep up with them?
1: Um, so a bit of a moving target can be for a lot of reasons. Uh, we could use a drug like clombuterol as an example. So clonbuterol was a a very uh, good therapeutic drug that was brought on uh, by a pharmaceutical company for horses with respiratory disease. And it was used for a number of years for that very effectively. Unfortunately, uh, at higher doses, uh, clonbuterol could be used as a repartitioning agent, meaning that it could result in an increased muscle, decreased fat deposition. So at very, at very high concentrations, it was used in uh, cattle and pigs as a performance enhancing. And with that knowledge, uh, some horsemen kind of went back and re-evaluated the use, and they started putting all of their horses on scopol, on clambuterol in order to get these desired effects. When they did, we had to modify the way that we were testing for that, eventually make regulations and rules that prohibited it. First and quarter horses, because that's where most of the abuse was being uh, found. And then later for other breeds as well, because the medication, even though a very fine therapeutic, if misused, uh, can have inappropriate and performance enhancing effects. So that'd be an example of a, of a moving target a little bit with a drug, going from a therapeutic to a performance enhancing. And what we find is there are other substances that could also result in that. There is a perfect example of a a performance enhancing drug that came from a drug that was being investigated as a natural therapeutic. There's a drug called Dermorphin, which many people in the horse industry may know better as frog juice. Dermorphin was a substance that was investigated and found in the 80s. It was a natural product that came from a tree frog. And that particular substance has the same capability to bind opiate receptors, but it's more potent than morphine. So that substance that was found in a number of quarter horses uh, about 10 years ago became very problematic because they were using it as an enhancement drug. Because Mm -hmm. unlike humans, uh, horses are stimulated by certain doses of opiates.
0: Wow. So how did you go about kind of tracking down the frog juice? Is that something you can describe to us?
1: Well, it wasn't our laboratory that initially detected it, but one of the racing laboratories was given a syringe uh, with, you know, that was, they were suspected of containing an illegal substance. And they were able to tell from that raw material uh, that it was Dermorphin and identified that substance. It's very similar to the case that happened uh, just prior to that, about five years prior to that, with human uh, abuse of uh, tetrahydrogastronome, which came in a syringe to the UCLA laboratory, human laboratory exposure, and they developed a test for that substance, and it was found in a number of athletes, uh, human athletes, who were using that anabolic steroid. So sometimes we get information that comes to us in a fashion like that and we can able to uh, backtrack that into the identification of, of an illegal substance. Um, more often than not, we have to demonstrate and prove some of our rumors aren't exactly um, true, which means that in, in cases we hear a rumor that I'm fairly confident isn't happening, but we have to prove that analytically. An example of that is cone snail venom. Cone snail venom was a, a substance that was rumored to be used in race horses for a long time. Um, the drug in that case, psychonotide, is a substance that in fact uh, doesn't have a long half-life at all. It was uh, being used for people that had infractory back pain um, but they had to use that by surgically uh, implanting a, a pump that distributed that cone snail venom um, product directly into the spinal cord. If you put it in the biological system, meaning if you put it outside of the spinal cord, uh, plasma esterases will destroy it in a matter of minutes. So if you just inject it into the knee, you get zero effect out of it because it would be you know, gobbled up by esterases, uh, which destroy the drug and make it inactive in a matter of minutes. Um, but it was rumored that it was frequently being used, uh, and we had to demonstrate that, in fact, you know, even if it was used, it would be completely ineffective. The other thing that we found out that made it impractical was a single dose for that would have cost uh, approximately, I think it was around $18,000 for a single That's dose of iconotide for a horse.
0: That's a bit impractical.
1: <laughs> it seems like a, a very unlikely performance enhancing.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm.
1: But those are things that we had to demonstrate. We couldn't just say, we don't think it's, it's working. We actually have to demonstrate with our science that in fact that that's not happening.
0: Okay, I see. So let's go back to the equine biological passport And um, you were talking about the proteins and peptides that you would be looking at um, over a horse's life, perhaps. Tell me about the equine biological passport. Let's just review what that is.
1: Sure. The equine biological passport is a means that we're uh, developing in order to test horses at a competition. Uh, In many cases, that'll be longitudinally, so that's over time. We collect samples when they're younger through when they become older and they're competing to find out if they've been giving anything. And the way we use that is we use uh, something called biomarkers. And just like we talk about biomarkers for disease and illness, uh, biomarkers can be any type of indicator that we use to establish that a horse's uh, performance might be altered by a medication. So we can use a biomarker in some cases, might be a metabolite. But in this case, it'll be proteins and protein peptides that we're going to pull from the horse's system, and we're going to look for changes in the abundance of that. The change might be an increase or a decrease. And what happens is there's a trigger inside the horse's system from the medication that results in an increased gene expression. When that gene expresses additional uh, proteins and peptides, we can monitor that through our Econ Biological Passport and make templates so that we know when a horse is outside the normal parameters. We can utilize that information to do further scrutiny on that horse or investigate uh, whether the horse was given a medication during that period of time. So it draws additional attention to whether we approach that horse or don't approach that horse.
0: Okay. so at this point are you able to discriminate between an environmental contamination versus a deliberate performance enhancing attempt
1: uh at this point we're still developing that but yes at, at, when we are ready to implement that we will be able to distinguish naturally current environmental changes whether the horse was given a, you know antibiotic or therapeutic treatment whether it was uh you know raised in a in a field that was high protein or Uh, If they were given alfalfa hay versus Timothy hay, we should be able to readily establish that this horse was just in an environmental difference versus a pharmaceutical difference.
0: That's cool. So um, what types of things would you look for or what would happen if... um if a horse were to get a new drug for which they're not yet conventional testing methods, what would you see on uh, on the equine biological passport for something like that?
1: So that's the, the best part overall about you know, the equine biological passport concept is that um, we wouldn't necessarily have to know every drug that was out there. We could say that the horse's biological passport is indicative of an anabolic steroid or some type of growth promotant, not necessarily that the horse was given stenazol or equine growth hormone. We sure. can say that consistent with a horse that was given, you know, some type of performance enhancing substance, okay. uh, which is helpful because oftentimes, you know, uh, like the example with the Dermorphin, um, we needed to wait till somebody came with us came to us with a syringe before we could actually identify that compound. But in with the Equine Biological Passport, we could know well before that, that this horse was not typical and needed further scrutiny.
0: I see. So practically speaking, what would a horse's passport look like? So what would say a horse that's a few years into his racing career, have as biomarkers versus one that's just starting out or maybe still out in the field as a young very young horse
1: so what we see uh what we would uh, like to see uh, is a heat map indicator uh, where all of those normal parameters would be green so we would expect the horses uh, increase in you know, collagen-related or muscle growth parameters to all be, you know, at a higher level when they were in in race condition than they would be when they were just young as a yearling or a weanling. As that changes, we should be able to see a a consistent pattern that those horses would all fall within a green category, meaning the normal category. And the heat map then changes color and it gets more dense when those parameters start to get outside of that. Now, ideally we would compare that to the horse's own status when they were yearling or weanling and then compare it later on when they were competing. If that's not available, then we would uh, compare that to the general population. Mm-hmm. Once we identify what that looks like, then we can establish that as our norm. Anything outside of that norm would then be, uh, we would do further investigation or in fact, start to test that horse at a more frequent rate.
0: So tell me about a little bit of the studying that you've done so far. Um, aren't there some horses that you guys have been looking into with this um, this approach?
1: There are. Uh, we've looked at some compounds uh, that were administered and then we followed patterns and we did see uh, some physiological changes in a protein related to a, a dose of an anabolic steroid, and in that case, that uh, gene expression increased uh, for a period of time, and then that particular biomarker decrease, uh, disappeared entirely. So we hypothesized that that occurrence was a result of the horse being exposed to that, running into an increased protein production, which depleted the uh the available um, proteins for that particular biomarker resulting in a deficiency later on in time. So we can watch it go up and then go down. And that perfect indicator of a non-normal outcome.
0: Okay. So how would this equine biological passport fit in with the current conventional methods of testing?
1: Um, It would be an added competition test. So in those circumstances, we would be using that uh, for uh, a situation where the horse was um, between races, say between stakes races or approaching a a big event and they would be tested out of competition and we would make note of any uh, abnormal findings for that and report that back to the regulatory body.
0: Okay, I see. And where do you anticipate you'll be as far as working with the regulatory oversight and with what kind of timeline over the next few years?
1: Well, um, there's a couple of different approaches that we're gonna have to do. There aren't necessarily uh, regulations that cover all those circumstances. So we're gonna have to be in a situation where we um, make new rules in order to use effectively the biological passport so those rules would have to be something that we could utilize to disqualify horses that should not be compete uh, competing or include that information where the horse could come under further scrutiny
0: okay thank you you've said that this program is what we need to overcome today's doping challenges and protect our industry's reputation for the future tell me about how this program intersects with the public perception of the horse industry
1: Uh, So, you know, racing has struggled the last few years with some of its public perception, Um, and I don't think that many of the general public understand the effort that goes into making sure that, A, we have a level playing field for all competitors, but that it's a safety issue as well. Uh, that we work very hard with our drug testing, with our veterinary oversight, with the regulators to make sure that the horses and the jockeys are safe when they compete, whether it's through racetrack uh, renovations for racetrack surfaces, their anti-doping or their out-of-competition testing programs, the majority of those efforts are to establish that the horse is safe uh, and that the riders can compete without fear of injury. Now, with that being the the situation, uh, sometimes we don't do a great job of letting the general public know that all of these things are in place. We spend millions upon millions of dollars each year uh, for health, welfare, and safety, uh, and I think we do a a poor job oftentimes of telling people about that.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, is there anything else that you would like to add for our listeners today about um, the equine biological passport um, or drug testing in general while we're having this conversation
1: yeah so i mean one of the things that i I think you know people can know is this is an ongoing process we've been very fortunate to have some really strong partners uh, with that the university of kentucky uh, has led the way with that initially uh, UC Davis, while I was there, and the California Horse Racing Board allowed me to get this started. Uh, but the Jockey Club has been a, a big provider. Uh, but the last several years, uh, collaboration—sorry, collaboration and effort—came from Stone Street Farm. Uh, Barbara Banky and her group have been incredibly supportive and helped us raise additional funds from other partners in the industry to further the cause and get this going. With that, additionally, uh, we've had several farms, including Stone Street, allow us to sample their horses to get that baseline data and open up information to what the horses were treated with. Um, It it also provides them some transparency uh, when they go, if they're going to sell one of those horses to tell future buyers that the horse was not given anything. And here's the data and demonstration that it wasn't given any performance enhancing substance. So, you know, there's a a combination of information that we can provide. uh, But the access to those individual horses and the financial support are absolutely invaluable for us to get the research done. Mm-hmm. Um concurrent with that, uh, we've also, you know, continued to obtain and apply some of the newest technology uh, in the world of mass spectrometry to apply to these. And the reason that's so beneficial is because these are tools oftentimes that are loaned to us by the company that manufactures them and allow, allows us to use those for a period of time to develop new methods. Okay. That's another situation that allows us to answer questions that otherwise wouldn't be answerable. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, I do know that Stone Street produced a video um, about your laboratory, and we'll include a link to that in our show notes. Um, Is there a place that our listeners can learn more about the research that you're doing?
1: Um, There's been a few articles out there. uh, In addition to the uh, video connection on our website, there's also additional information Uh, about the laboratory through the Gluck Equine Research Center uh, website. Uh, It's at the University of Kentucky. Um, We have our own website for the Equine Local Chemistry Laboratory, but it's still fairly rudimentary. Uh, Anybody that has specific information, they can either go through um, the College of Agriculture's uh, office for media control or also contact me directly for any information. Um, The facility that we're in right now is um, uh, also getting upgraded. So in the next couple of years, we'll be in a brand new facility as well. So we're we're still looking at quite a few uh, excellent advances that the lab's
0: gonna go through. That's great to hear. Thank you very much, Dr. Stanley, for sharing your time and expertise with us today.
1: Well, thank you, uh, Stephanie, I appreciate the opportunity and always happy to to provide information to folks in the industry. And uh, this was a wonderful opportunity for us to do that from the university. Thank you.
0: Welcome. I also want to thank our sponsor, Zoetis. For more from The Horse, visit thehorse.com, sign up for our newsletters, or look for Ask The Horse Live wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Please join us next time as we explore the horse industry equine animators.